Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Hello, UX Cake community. This week's episode was a live recording at the Convey UX conference in early March with a panel of UX pros who joined me to talk about influencing without authority, which is such an important topic and clearly very relevant based on the turnout. This session was standing room only. This episode is almost twice as long as our normal episodes, but you really don't want to miss the second half. We turn it over to audience members to ask advice about their own situations, kind of mini mentoring sessions. And we got questions on a wide variety of things, everything from getting stakeholders to respect your quantitative research to dealing with others' biases that undermine your authority. We had a real diversity of experience in the panel, which makes for such an amazing conversation. And the audience was great, very engaged. And I think this is what UX Cake is really all about. It's that synergy that can happen when we come together as a community. So I really love doing live recordings. Before we start, I just want to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, join the UX Cake community by following us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And if you like this episode, share it with a colleague or two. Just send them a link to this episode. Those are the ways we're growing UX Cake, where our mission is to strengthen the UX community by helping all of us become more effective in our work and our careers. Welcome to a very special recording of the UX Cake podcast. Today, we're talking about influencing without authority. This is a topic that is important for anyone in any line of work, but in UX in particular, it takes on many, many more layers because not only do we need to influence within our teams and across teams, sideways, up, we also are in a position where we in UX are influencing decisions and strategies that we don't own. It comes up very often in mentoring and it comes up very often just in my own work. And I've been doing this for a very long time and it's still something that comes up. So I'm going to introduce you briefly to our panelists. And rather than telling you what you can read already on the website about them, I'm going to tell you why we chose them for this panel. So Ashby Pfizer is the Director of Product and Technology for the National Democratic Training Committee. We asked Ashby to join us on this panel because she often addresses topics like persuasion and how to embody the power we have in order to make changes. And that's something that's very, is a very important part of influencing. We also have Hannah Nagel, who is currently a service designer with Element AI. And we ask Hannah because of her focus on the quest of scaling availability of research insights and enabling others to act on them. I think that we will probably be bringing up research many times in this conversation. Empowering others is also a very powerful way of influencing. We have Rayal Canty, who is an experienced researcher at Airbnb in San Francisco. 
And we asked Rael to join us because he talks about the need to find integrative ways to understand different expectations and reframe problems, which is also very important to think about when we are thinking about how can we be more influential. Influencing without authority. If you Google it, you will find many different theories and principles and five bullet lists of how to do it. So today what we want to do is bring you stories from UX pros who have actually been there. And we are going to, in telling you these stories, also tell you about the the principles and techniques that we have employed that you can use, you can take with you to use in your own work and probably even us (laughs) as well. So with that, let's start with Hannah. Do you have a story about influencing without authority and what sort of principles or techniques did you use in that situation? Yeah, I think I'm going to recycle a story from my presentation. So if you were there, you're going to hear it again. And if not, I'll just share it with you. So my presentation, which I now feel like I should rename to Influencing Without Authority, was about scaling uh, research insights at SAP, which I actually joined as an intern and had kind of a a grandiose concept for scaling up uh, research ops and research insights in a very large enterprise. The too-long-didn't-read version of that case study is that I reached out to folks who were in positions of influence or authority, and I figured out what was important to them and how I could align my goals with their outputs that they were focused on. And the story is that I took a user research approach. So I did user interviews. I kind of did a a mixed method approach of quantitative and qualitative to see how frequently these challenges occurred across that enterprise. And then I identified who would be the key change makers in that space So like you mentioned, as designers or researchers, we might not often have authority over the end product that may be out of scope. And for SAP, the folks who do have the most control or power over the end product are the product owners or the PMs. And so we realized that we actually needed to focus on them as the key change makers. So figuring out what was important to them, which in this case is managing a budget or delivering that product on time or managing code rework. And then showing how user research would actually align and help them to meet those goals and wouldn't act as something that would slow them down. Because I think a perception of user research is that it can take you off course. There's too much nitty gritty, too many little facts. But if I could align that output of the research insights with what they cared very deeply about, I was able to reposition that as something that was really valuable for them uh, and something that they really wanted to focus on, especially in the high impact areas of that cycle. So right in the beginning, that discovery phase, and then right before it was released to customers. So I'm curious, at the beginning of this, when you were being asked to do some research already, right? How did you come around to understanding that you needed to make it what was important to them? Was that different than what you had originally been asked to do? Yeah, a fun plot twist is that they weren't asking me to do any research, which I thought was probably an initial challenge. They understood the concept of research and on a high level, the value of it. But they were working on these really tight turnarounds and it wasn't clear to them the kind of resources that they would need, what they would need to think about, how to ask the right questions. So I would I would be sitting in on, you know, maybe their their daily standups um, or maybe some design review meetings and realizing that there are more and more questions being surfaced, maybe not in the form of research questions, but things that I was translating into questions they needed to know, high impact questions we needed to answer or validate. And then realizing I needed to reposition it to them as 
here's a way that I can help you test that and work through that assumption and deliver the findings to you in a way that are consumable, that you can actually act on in two weeks uh, and keep breaking that down. And also framing it to them that it's not over, that the research will give them new questions, which we will then answer in a turnaround kind of timeframe. So it also sets their expectations and helps them to work it into their product development cycles as well. And I have lots of questions about that. And I have a feeling that we're going to see some of these themes coming about in these stories. So let's move to the next story. Go ahead, Rael. One of the things it's important to understand when you're working with stakeholders, you're working with people in authority, just to understand that they are human beings. And if we understand that principles, have some principles around, around the way that human beings think and what their expectations are, then we can apply principles to win over some very tough challenges. So in this particular case, I was working on a, pro, you know, on a product team and the product manager was very, very data centered and already knew that the only thing that they wanted to do is they wanted to just a series of A-B testing. My challenge then... And I love it when these challenges are presented because typically they're doing what they're comfortable with doing. So what I did is, you know, if you understand the way that people think, so there's Chaldini who identified one of the principles of how people think and what their expectations are as being one of reciprocity. So that's a very simple gift. If you give something to someone, they're likely to return something and give you something back, right? And so in this context, it's very similar to what you were suggesting, Anna, and it's that even in a space where they had clearly identified that they were going to do this A-B testing uh, and utilize design science, I just took the opportunity to go out and identify places where we can bring in some user science and then presented that at a meeting and just turned that over. That was a gift. It was a gift. That was, and, and in that, I knew that later down the road in the engagements that I was going to build in trust. That's the way that I could buy in trust and I could keep a product manager who was primarily data-driven, help him shift from being a data-driven thinker over to one that he starts to value the users and user empathy. And so was the outcome of that tying this back to influence? Did you see these PMs coming to you or to your team maybe more often or with more strategic requests as opposed to tactical Something like that. So what the outcome of that ended up being was and is is a, now a product manager who brings user experience researchers into all the strategy meetings, right? And so now we're an essential part of that the work that's taking place in that space. Yeah, that's powerful. Ashby. I want to start by just saying the reason I know anything about this is because I did it wrong a lot of times <laughs> before I got it right and banged my head against the wall and made a lot of people upset with me <laughs> because I pushed too hard or I was too passionate about something. And, you know, I very much owning my, my being loud and whatnot. And I, I love that about myself now. But as I went through, one of the, the stories that kind of sticks out to me is one from about three and a half years ago. So I was working at a large consulting firm and every project that I was being put on was basically like, hey, we need some wireframes. Here's your list of requirements. Go draw it and then make it. And I, you know, was like, well, uh, what did the users think? <laughs> and after like at least one or two projects of doing that, I was like, hmm, they really, you know, I kept asking, kept pushing for research and they really didn't, they pushed back. 
And so finally, on one project, I actually had a client who wanted to do some user research, but they only had two weeks to do this user research. (laughs) And so it was, I did like six, seven interviews back to back in one day, hurried and threw together a script like that morning or something. And it actually worked out and my feet hurt really bad at the end of that day. And it was really exhausting, but we were able to get the insights into that project and it really helped the trajectory of the project. And so from there, along with a really talented graphic designer, we decided to develop a agile research methodology. And so we called it Pulse and we packaged it and we made a slick slide deck and we passed it out to all of the the directors and the consultants who were out there selling stuff. And then all of a sudden they started selling projects with research. And so kind of the the tactic there or the the thing is is speaking the right language. And so it was slick, it was pretty, it was it was basic research kind of methodology, but it had no the word research was not even in there anywhere. <laughs> it was just hey, we're going to talk to users and we're going to tell you what they think. And and they could get on board with that. And so, you know, as an add-on to that is is learning to speak the language you know, we do such a great job of listening to our users and sometimes we forget to listen to our business partners or our developers. And so I swear someday I'm going to put this on my resume. My husband is an engineer and I speak fluent dev. And I really think that that's a, a selling point. And so as as a UX person, you need to to speak their language and then frame what you're doing in a way that they can understand. Actually, I I hear tones of that from all three of your stories. And I want to point out that speaking the language with your stakeholders looks very different or sounds like it looks very different than speaking the language with your stakeholders. So that is something that we also have to take into consideration is what worked for us last time might not be the same. And like now I'm working in a political startup. And so I have to make things seem like it's a campaign and there's polls. <laughs> We're polling people, you know, and so it's a different, you know, approach, but it's putting it in a context so they can understand. One other thing that I would like to sort of put in here is you're all talking about research. And I think probably everyone in this room thinks that research is a great thing. And we often don't have the time or resources. And in fact, I was thinking about this this morning about the situation of a designer in a company which has research but is not in the same team as research. Because I I do hear this come up quite a bit, you know. So they aren't really the ones doing the research. And it made me think about a time uh, a long time ago when I was at Getty Images where this was my situation. And I partnered very closely with the lead of the research team. And I think In doing that, we both extended our own influence because design had more influence with, say, the creative team and even the dev team, which the dev team, they thought user research just kind of slowed stuff down. But however, the research team had much more influence with the business team. And so that actually was a very strong partnership. And I'm wondering if any of you have experienced something like that, similar. 
Yeah. I think on the topic of creating partnerships, one first step is to be like, who has the most to lose in this situation? And therefore, who can you deliver the most value to? So if the project is at risk of being off budget or you know not meeting certain deadlines, and then you can align with who's responsible for that um, and show how your research will put that back on track. And to riff off something that you said about delivering research or presenting research insights in a way that doesn't use the term research, I really like this framework called Assumption Slam, which is uh, by Julie Booth, who's a researcher at Shopify. And it's just a really easy way to get them to generate uh, high impact hypotheses without ever using the word research. You should get them together in a room. There's nothing really to prepare. You just give them some cookies and be like, what will cause your project to fail? You map it out in this two by two and you walk away with it with these really clear hypotheses that you can rank in terms of urgency. You've never really used the term research. No one's scared, uh, but you have a really clear path forward about what you want to deliver. And you also have a key idea of who your partners might be, who was actually uh, vocalizing what needed to happen. Who do you need to deepen relationships with in order to really push that forward? So follow-up question on that. When you're talking about research in that particular situation, do you mean you were doing research by conducting this or you were taking away, oh, I need to go and and this is the research I'm going to go do now? So yes, and sometimes I find that there's not enough time or money for research insights to be happening. And so I need to find a way to help them to ask the right questions and then figure out how I can support them with maybe some intro methodologies that they can use to answer part of those questions, or maybe to do part of the data gathering, and then I do the analysis. So kind of sharing and breaking it down. So starting with the assumption slam is an easy way for us as a group to align on key priorities. And then if there's something more complex, something that requires a bit more training, I'll take that on, but I'll give them some tasks to do so that we're sharing uh, the work and they feel invested as well in the outcome. That's another really important piece is bringing people along on the journey. Yeah, I have a couple of stories that you're just kind of reminding me of. So Tamara Adlin last year at Convey UX, she debuted her Alignment Personas book, which I think is published online. You know, she is like the persona goddess and she has been thinking about personas for a long time. And after doing personas forever and ever, she kind of got to this point where she realized that all the stakeholders needed to align on a person and and a persona and a kind of group of qualities that that represented somebody that they were looking to target with their business. I've found that to be incredibly valuable over the past year and a half or so. You know, I sort of knew about it before it came out and I started using it in my work. And I had a situation at Amazon, a couple situations, and then I've done it now twice at my new organization. And I've done kind of like a modified sprint workshop where we start with an alignment persona day and we actually create our personas together. And so it's not necessarily the traditional go out and do a whole bunch of interviews, create, but it, it's all of the stakeholders. And many of them usually, you know, have spent spending a lot of time, you know, thinking about them, talking to them for, you know, product owners, whatnot for a long time. And so getting everybody in a room using a bunch of sticky notes, I won't go into the details, but in my current company, that worked so well. The first time I did it, they were like, okay, and we, we want to launch this other product and we want to do personas and we don't have time you know, we don't want to spend a full day on that on our workshop. So we'd actually like to hire someone and here's a budget to go hire a real researcher to go do real personas. So I thought that that was like a huge success of like a one day kind of thing that then turned into here's five grand to go hire a real researcher to do this. 
So I thought that was really good. So yeah, sometimes kind of baiting them with with a little bit of something that that gives them that ability to have a say and then and then they'll give you more money. And do you think before you went into this process, if you had said, okay, we're going to take $5,000 and create personas, hire this company to do personas. Yeah, there's no way. They're, they're a small nonprofit political startup. None of them knew anything about research. So there's no, if I would have gone in the first day and said, can I have five grand to do personas? They would have been like, it would have been no. In, in that initial description, when you were talking about how design is separate from, from research, you think about in large organizations, sometimes you have a lot of disparate teams and disparate interests distributed across those companies. One of the things that we find is being able to rally the troops. Okay. And so, so sometimes when you have people who are really stone hearted toward a particular perspective or a particular set of expectations, bringing in Confederates, bringing Confederates into the room can actually provide a, a way to win people over. So there was a case where I knew that the value communicating, it's one thing to articulate the value of your work and the value of your findings for a team, but you have to know who you're communicating with. And sometimes that's all you need in order to to successfully move things forward. But in other times, you have to actually use consensus. You need to bring some sort of authority. And we we do it. A lot of times when we talk about that alignment, that early alignment, we're trying to identify who's the, the key decision maker in the room or on the project or in the company that we can bring in and make them an ally. But in other cases, just having additional voices that support what it is that you're doing, walk into the room unexpectedly. So, you know, you invite a team, but you, and a lot of times, especially when you're leading these, these kind of design thinking, sprint engagements, you should be handpicking people who are coming into your, into these sessions. Right. And that's the same thing when it comes to presenting your, your work, when you're doing a, a readout of any type, I'm very careful that prior to that readout, I've communicated this several times with different researchers across the organization, across different teams. I know where my work, how it fits within a network of other projects and where there's uh, tangential relationships and where there's some really strong relationships. And I bring those people into the room when I'm giving a readout so that I can demonstrate not only the value to the current project, but also the value to the company abroad. And the, the leadership whether those are PMs or not, those people are then, it gets, grabs their attention because that increases the likelihood that whatever they're working on is actually going to launch, that we're actually going to move that, that product out. Yeah. So that consensus building, similar sort of idea, creating the pre-meeting before you go to the meeting and when it's really important and you're with someone who has much more authority than you, and you really don't have authority in that situation. But what that reminds me of is that, you know, sometimes you don't have a lot of time. So in your situation, it sounds like you had time previously to build relationships with other people that you did have some influence with, and you utilize that possibly to bring influence in a situation where these are people that you didn't have time to build that relationship with. My question here is about shortcuts, other ways that you have found, like you don't have a lot of time for the relationship building maybe. And in this case, perhaps it's more the theories of persuasion, (laughs) (laughs) but you need people to see that you know what you're talking about and believe that you have valid answers, ideas, opinions. Know your domain. 
it's important to know your domain. So whatever it is that you're working on, most of the time, you're not an island. And what you're doing is probably something that's been done, comparable work that's been done outside of maybe your company. And so leveraging the efforts of other leaders, other leadership entities inside of the industry. So it might be another company. And, you know, as you present your work, if it's a best practice, then it's probably something that's been done by somebody else. Somebody else is using that same approach. You know, some of these people love it when it's like, okay, well, you know, company X has also done this. Company has, has done that. And guess what it's done for them? And that can help sway the tide uh, in terms of negotiation, in terms of winning people over, winning over authority. Yeah, I found spamming people with articles, you know, can help so that you're not the one. So as a woman walking into any sort of leadership situation, you don't often have the luxury of someone trusting that you know what you're talking about. That happens a lot. So what I tend to do is try to use other voices to be the subject matter experts so that I'm not saying, hey, I have 20 years of experience and I know what I'm talking about because that usually doesn't go over well. Instead, I say, hey, you know, I was reading these 18 articles, not really 18, but, (laughs) you know, here's a couple articles, you know, that where these XYZ companies have had similar challenges to ours and this is how they solve them. And what do you think about trying one of these? And that usually will go over way better than me just sitting in a meeting and saying, this is wrong and don't do it that way. I I wanted to pick up on something that you said about being members of underrepresented uh, areas of tech. So I think for people of color and and women and queer folks, of which I am all three, it can be more challenging to assert your authority in these spaces. And I do want to encourage folks to find that balance between finding your own voice and raising up your own position of authority with bringing in other voices. You know, don't be afraid to to stand your ground and to share your position of authority based on your experience or your education. But also don't be afraid to pull on other voices because we are not islands. We're all standing on the shoulders of giants. And something that I also like to do in those situations is to find really long articles. So I'll pull up people's like PhD thesis and be like, if you've to read these 400 pages, you too can have this level of expertise. But then I just get back to being like, or I could tell you the right answer. Which reminds me of another tactic. And we talked about this quite a bit in our pre-panel conversation, which is the tactic, the technique of asking questions. Because I have found that as a woman in tech in particular, our authority, it does kind of end up sounding like we have to either you're always saying, here's the reason why you should listen to me because I've been working for 20 years, blah, blah, blah. We did this and blah. Back when I was at Amazon, that is real popular. But this idea of questions, and I think many people seem to think that asking questions maybe puts you in a position of less authority. But I have found in my experience, working with a lot of executives, that when you ask them, there are great ways of asking questions that make you sound smart, (laughs) right? So you are coming across as someone who knows what you're talking about. You're asking them about something that's very important to them, possibly mirroring their language. But asking questions can be a really powerful, powerful tool for just bringing authority without having to, you know, show your resume. I think that questions can make you sound really smart. 
you know, really good, thoughtful questions. And the key to a really great question that your VP or your SVP or your CEO is going to love is a question that makes him sound smart or her smart or, or her. I know I just caught myself <laughs> unconscious <laughs> hashtag. Yeah. So asking a question where you kind of feed them the answer, but then they get to own you know, oh yeah, I think this would be a really great idea. And you're like, oh yeah, I think that would be a really great idea. And so the the curiosity, Ariel, you brought that up really brilliantly in our in our early conversation is that an authentic curiosity, right? Because you really do want to know what's important to them. That's really critical. You want to UX you. You want to UX your value that you're adding to the organization. I love how earlier you you said, did I get off track? Right? Right there, you were like trying to still keep your comments in a thread that went where Lee was looking for, which I thought was lovely. I think as researchers, asking the right questions is always our, our in. So either helping others to elicit the right questions or using questions as a form of engagement and trust building, being able to echo back and give ownership, you were saying, is a really great way to create that rapport and also create partnerships. I always try and get a, when possible, sometimes meetings are back to back, but always try and get some kind of pre, pre-questions that I can go into the meeting with so that I can demonstrate my familiarity with at least one point that's really important to them and show how I'll add value by saying, if this, then that, and show where we're going. I think about sources of inspiration, right? And we should always be reaching outside of our comfort zone for sources of inspiration. And when I, when I listen to this question asking, comedians, like timing and delivery are key. And I, I hear that in, you said in, in your responses. Absolutely. Comedians. So anyone can just think they're funny. Anyone can ask a question, but it's about the timing and the delivery. And so just sitting here as, as I'm learning, while I'm sitting in, in this seat, I'm thinking about sources of inspiration and, and, you know, why learning from someone like comedians could be valuable to our, our work. Does anyone here do any improv? Has anyone done any improv work? See, right. Okay, so we're, we're already here, right? Second city. But you don't have to be funny. You don't have to be funny, to be, but, to but some, some of the great improvs, so Second City, right? Um, so some of those places are, are great, and it's really about timing. It's really about opening up. But I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of other sources of inspiration that you can use. And so when you identify a strategy, don't ever forget this about the timing and the delivery, because if you don't ask that question right, <laughs> it could go over poorly. I want to make sure that we have time for questions from you all, because coming into this, we can think about the situations that have come up for us in the past, but I would really like to hear situations that any of you maybe, or someone you know, has gone through, maybe is going through. Would anyone be willing to share a situation in which maybe we could? Awesome. Okay. Hello. Thank you. So this has a tie into your talk that we just left about design thinking maturity. I'm going to ask a question that's long-winded and sort of going to out my organization in their own maturity level. You we, don't have to say your organization I'm, name. Turn just, this around. This is going to be broadcast later, just FYI. So the, the scenario that I'm going to describe, we've talked a lot today about how the value of research can in itself be the influencing factor that maybe pushes the problem to a, a more productive conclusion. The scenario I deal with a lot is when research is rejected 
So I'm wondering if you guys have any experiences you could speak on about that. Yeah. Rial, you want to come back up and we'll do, let's do a little mini mentoring. So right into the hard hitting stuff. (laughs) We're going to do a little mini mentoring. So the question is, when you are in an organization where the UX maturity is low, you do research and it's rejected. By rejected, do you mean someone looked at it and they were like, I I don't like it, I'm not going to use it, or they just didn't even engage with it? I would say both. So there is research we do in-house that we've shared. And maybe it's more common when we just we tap into industry knowledge and industry research. So like those articles and you know, just the email blast of here's all these things that back up our position and then those are dismissed. I'm curious about the relationship between the team that's presenting the research and the team that is receiving the research. Yeah, so we have a, whatever the opposite of a distributed UX model is. You're consolidated. UX, consolidated UX team. Research is, is partner with UX, but we consult in-house to hundreds of development teams. So they're viewing you as consultants, perhaps. Yep. Okay. So I've experienced that a couple of times and I'm going to share my assertive answer to that. I've had a couple of times where I present uh, research insights and folks say, I don't think so. They'll read through it and they'll just be like, I don't think so. And I say, "All, all feelings are valid, but we're making decisions here that are data informed. So if you have new data that challenges the data that I've just presented to you, uh, I welcome it because that will give us more information to make a decision on. But if you're walking into this and you're saying that you have some emotional reactions to it and that's enough reason for you to ignore this data, then that's not something that we're going to move forward with. Um, and I find that just presenting it in that somewhat assertive framework puts them in a position where they have to say, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's either ignore it and, and do an uninformed decision or let's move forward with something that we've all researched and made a decision about. It's usually successful. I wouldn't say it's a 100% success rate. I would also say there's some social finagling to do in there because it does put someone on the spot. So you do have to be prepared to deal with the repercussions of putting that person on the spot. But I'm going to be honest and say sometimes folks need to be put on the spot. Uh, They're going to challenge your authority or your insights that you're providing. Perhaps sometimes there's an appropriate time to push back within the constraints and the boundaries of that relationship in order to move that project forward for the benefit of everyone. Because your goal as a researcher is not to slow things down or keep things off budget. You're you're only delivering insights that you think will push that product out into the market or deliver a better experience. At the end of the day, we're all most of us probably are working in uh, some sort of capitalist enterprise. And so our goal is to make money somehow. So we're only delivering insights that will feed that bottom line in some way. And so we are all aligned on that common goal. So when we can bring it back to that, I find it's more oftentimes successful. So you're talking about perhaps putting it in their language. So relevance, which you're saying perhaps if data is important to them, saying this is the data. Yeah. And I I find uh, sometimes I'll translate the findings into who needs to act on it. So PMs or engineers, they love a good graph. They love numbers. So sometimes I'll take, even if it's a qualitative insight, I'll just put it in graph form and love voila. It's like magically in their language. And sometimes it means doing the opposite, you know, writing it out of sentence or making it into a story, translating it into the most consumable form for them. I think we touched on this in the beginning of it, thinking of your internal colleagues as your, your users. Um, so who are they? What are their needs and goals? And how can you deliver your product, which is those insights in a way that is really meeting their needs? Okay. So 
there's design research and then there's also research design. And part of research design is walking through trying to understand the problem. And you should include those stakeholders, bring them into that design process so that you're not just showing up with some results. Actually take them in, formulate hypotheses with them, design testing, right? And if they're not comfortable with a particular methodology, then leverage the knowledge of people around you. If, for example, you're only qualitative or if you're only quantitative, right? Bring those people in, but start from the beginning. It's the same thing that we do when we're trying to design an experience. We're trying to design some interface. We talk about bringing the stakeholders in, but I, I treat research. That process is we're also designing research and I include them on everything. We have a meeting when I have a, my research plan together. I hold a meeting for that research plan and we walk through that and I tell them what each one of these different tests, what each type of observation affords in terms of understanding the problem space. If there's an issue around that, then we lay that out now, but I get commitment up front. And once you get commitment up front, then pretty much you've got the buy-in that you need. And so after that, then we get to the point of, okay, so now we've got evidence. Are we doing evidence, evidence-centered, evidence-driven design, or are we just shooting it from the hip? And so, you know, accept the challenge. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about maturation, okay? And so when designers are young, sometimes they don't really understand the value and the opportunity uh, that's in front of them to actually create multiple ideas. And I I work with those designers. When they hand me something and they say, hey, we need some feedback on this. Before you came up with this, did you have any other ideas that popped into your head? What were those ideas? Just... Get those out. Give me two or three things that you thought. I'm curious about this scenario specifically. We've heard about bringing them along, trying to talk in their language. Do any of these, I'm asking the question asker, do do any of these sound like something that would work in your situation? Yeah, I I think especially the, the first response about thoughtful assertiveness will be effective or hopefully effective for us. But of course, I'm willing to try anything. (laughs) Did you have any other thoughts on this, Ashby? I do, actually. One thing that that we didn't mention, and and I know that this is not necessarily comfortable for everyone, but a lot of times if you present a sketch or a visualization that actually illustrates one, a change or an opportunity that your research can, sometimes for some people seeing it, can be really magical. And especially even for an engineer, if it's something simple, they're like, oh yeah, I could code that in a, in a week or two. Whereas sometimes they're in their brain, there's like, oh, then it'll have to go back to design and it'll take forever and blah, blah. You know what I mean? If you can make it shorter or e- more easily digestible for them, that can often go a long way. And then, I mean, just kind of back to what Rial said, like you want to make sure that you have buy-in before you do like some big research study and make sure that you're solving problems that they are actually aware of, right? And then I feel like the other little tip, using emotion in addition to data is bringing in the highlight reel. You know, I found that to be incredibly powerful, especially with senior stakeholders you show four or five users stumbling over something or saying a similar thing about a product, you'll almost always get buy-in if you, if you take the time to do the highlight reel. And looking at secondary research, I think it can be helpful to point out what the outcome was for someone else. You have a follow-up question. Okay. How do you make sure that your stakeholders or PMs give the same importance to 
qualitative research that they give to quantitative research. Ah, okay. So this is, and just tying this back to influence without authority, in many companies, quantitative data, it has authority because there's lots of it. Qualitative doesn't because it's kind of touchy-feely and there's not as much data. Yeah, that's such a good question. I used to work at SAP, which is an engineering organization. Now I work at Element AI, which is a machine learning organization. So both have a, a large focus on data and its validity. And so I would say there's two parts to how I approach that. One is through the research planning phase, I'll generally get questions around how many people I'll be interacting with. And I'll do a little bit of education at that point and say what we're going for is both depth and breadth. So we're going for depth of those stories. You want to understand all the nuances and the differences between these stories. Um, and that's going to help us understand the similarities and the differences and what's important and why. And then we want to look for frequency and that's the breadth area. So if I need to translate that into something that's quantitative, I might not have enough numbers for that to be quantitative initially. Maybe I'll do seven interviews and that's not very many interviews. But what I'll start from there is to say, okay, we identified these similarities and differences in their, in their narratives or their experiences. And now I'm going to move into the quantitative phase because I want to get you know, a statistically valid sample so I can show you its occurrence across. There is some person-to-person conversations there in explaining and building a rapport with them as to why I'm interested in this very small but deep sample set. And then when I'm delivering reports, I don't tend to write reports per se. I tend to just deliver like three slides because no one's reading past that. But I'll put, you know, one graph on there and I'll link it to something else to show them why it's important. It can also help to talk about how it is we came in our field to to believe that data shows that five users, seven users, what have you, is enough to see the patterns. I want to make sure that we get any other questions. Can I, can I yes and break really quick? So yes, and my own answer. There's also that concept of like, oh, five to seven users is enough. And I try and steer people uh, away from that also, because again, part of our role is to ask the right questions. And so if you're looking at five to seven people, when do you identify what those important patterns are instead of saying, oh, we got five interviews and now let's make a product decision based on it. So sometimes the way I'll reframe it quantitatively is to be like, okay, you got this information, seven users. Awesome. Is that enough? Does that give you enough confidence to make a $2 million uh, investment in this product? You know, scrum teams average uh, 10% scrum teams about a million dollars a year minimum. So if you put them to work for two weeks, six months, you know, roughly calculate that and be like, is that enough for you to invest that money right now? It's probably not. So let's go back and refine it a bit. Yeah. Sometimes it's just the start to show us where we need to look. Hi there. The theme of influence of an authority made me think of peers and influencing peers. So I'm in a situation where as a woman and a person of color in tech, I can be in companies where I have peers that I don't know as well. And the focus is on delivering value to stakeholders very quickly. And so I wanted to ask about how do you kind of influence peers to give space and not assume, right, that the expertise is or is not there because of how you, you know, look and, you know, just really give space to have organic conversations and get to know each other. So everyone knows where the expertise is and how you can collaborate. If I can rephrase your question, I think what you were very gently asking about is navigating bias. I love this topic. So I know I mentioned it really briefly before, but my family's really mixed. 
So my mom is white and Jewish. My dad is black. I'm queer and a woman. Um, I also have diabetes type one, which technically is a disability because it affects my like every hour. So there's never anyone in the room like me. You know, there might be other women. There's probably another black woman. There's probably might not be another black queer woman who's also disabled. I'm always going to be the only one in the space that I'm in. I find that I have to navigate between, I would say, uh, gentleness and uh, assertiveness because one uh, pro of having so many facets is that I I do have a lot of similarities with a lot of different people. Also, weirdly, the way my name is spelled, it's actually a Hebrew name, but it's also like an Ethiopian name and a Korean name. And even though I'm not obviously of those ethnicities, people will be like, oh, did, did you know? And I'm like, yes, I'm not of your culture, but now, now we have an in, you know? And so I do vacillate between finding that uh, common ground and finding that one way that I am like them. And when it is less agreeable, when I do find that there is pushback because I am not like them, uh, I've learned to be more assertive in my own expertise um, and to not doubt how I got to be where I am and why I'm speaking to what I am, while also being very humble and very comfortable uh, saying I don't know, and then reaching out to folks who do know, because LinkedIn has a range of expertise, and I found that those people are really uh, welcoming when I reach out to them with questions. But I feel like I'm not exactly answering your question, but I'm acknowledging the challenges of navigating that space while also encouraging folks to not be afraid to be assertive in the ways that other folks are assertive. You know, I, uh, I recently noticed this and I'm noticing it more often now that some folks who are in the majority of tech, they are very comfortable with just being like, I don't, I don't like this thing. I, I disagree because I think, you know, based on literally nothing, uh, but I just don't think so. And I feel like as a, as like a woman of color, you know, who's queer, I don't have that space. I can't roll into these spaces and just be wrong. I have to be speaking from a place of authority. And so I, I'm very cautious when I say something, I am extremely certain of how accurate it is. And when I have pushback against that, I've learned to both take a breath and then be like, actually, you're wrong. And I use that language. I'm saying what you're saying is incorrect. And what I'm saying is correct because. And so gently standing, my, I hate to use that phrase, but I can't think of a better thing off the top of my head. Gently standing where I am and asserting my expertise in a way that sometimes might be challenging to that other person um, is something that I found impactful. But again, did I go off track? Because I feel like I went on my own. No, I think you addressed it. I was focused on the timing of it. So in the instance of I'm here and I have to maybe co-coach I'm an agile coach, but I may have to co-coach with peers. Hey, just met you today. Let's go in and let's coach together. And it's like, hey, okay, great. I'll take lead. Don't you worry about it. Like that sort of thing where I have to build relationships very quickly and establish that expertise very quickly. Yeah, I think I'm understanding where you were going with this. I try to balance giving space when you're saying, okay, I'll take this section. If they're jumping in ahead and maybe dominating part of that, then I'll try and interrupt and say, actually confirming that I will now speak and that I'm not, you know, I'm not ceding the floor or whatever. I guess being gently assertive is my main takeaway here. Works, thanks. I don't, I don't have the exact situation, but it does remind me of a situation that I had, which was co-coaching with someone. It was a guy who didn't seem to want to give lead 
or space or anything. And what worked for me in that situation was asking questions and say, okay, can I ask a question? And da, 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 and just keep asking the question. I'm not sure that would necessarily work in that situation, but asking questions has been really powerful to me for me. So yeah. Having been a consultant, I'll just throw this in here. The more time you can kind of spend with people in social situations right up front within the first few days can often really help break down some of those barriers, humanize people, and and allow you that time and space to really communicate who you are and what assets and knowledge you bring to the table. So, you know, going out to dinner really early on in the project and like making sure you have kind of that social space can can actually help with that. Not always, but sometimes. Was there one more question real quick? Oh, yeah. Hi. Okay. I know we're talking about bias about, you know, like I kind of feel that too. I'm an Asian woman, so I'm seen like it's compliant or I shouldn't have like be vocal. But also I want to talk about like even age bias and how you guys navigated that when you're younger. And like, you know, I can send as many articles as I want, but like, you know, if people kind of like don't want to listen to me because I've gotten comments before. It's like, oh, you're young, like you'll learn like, but I'm like, well, can you teach me now? And they're just... (laughs) That is a really good point. Thank you. Because I did want us to think about the things that were helpful for us early in our career. Uh, I'll, I'll take that a little bit because I did it the wrong way. <laughs> um, so I was an associate creative director when I was 25. And so I was very young. I cut all my hair off and started wearing really hideous suits to try to like look more mature and, and be, you know, taken seriously. I don't know that that really helped <laughs> or worked, but what did help and work was building relationships with, um, my peers who were a little older and really helped me to to understand their perspective and and also to connect with them and so that helped them to see me as as a leader and someone who could think strategically and i think just bringing your ideas to the table and making them happen making them real and and showing the rest of the team how you can bring something that is really strategically important and and that will help build, you know, that recognition and that trust. Finding a way, yeah. Finding a way to tell a story in a way that everyone can see. Like I know this from someone that I worked with and it was amazing. She worked with someone else on the team just on the side and they created this video that was like a whiteboard video that explained something that had to do with our something. I don't remember now. It's just something that our, what our team was doing. And it was amazing. And it gave everybody this like new perspective of her. She was young, early twenties. And not only did it showcase some other talent that she had, but it also showcased her like real knowledge of the subject. So don't forget to keep an open mind about your possibilities. Never lose value in yourself. Okay. That people aren't obligated to give you that. Uh, and create outside of that space. So there's the go to work thing every day. That's important for paying the bills, but it also helps when people know that you do what you do because you love it. Like I do it for the money. I do it without the money. I'm going to do it. If I can't do it here, I'm going to do it somewhere else. Go out there and demonstrate that. And after a while that your expertise, it can't be, it can't be denied because you're doing it and it's not about just the paper. And that, that's important. I've had to do that numerous times. I've, I've always felt that 
I know where I come from. And no matter where I move, a lot of times the space is different. You know, I, I might stand different. I might walk different. I'm going to talk different. I, I do a lot of things that's different, even among, you know, black males that are in, inside of the, the field or any professional field. But I value that. I value where I come from. I value that. It's enriching. And age is, a, is the same thing. It's being able to move into a space. We deal with knowledge, wisdom, understanding, expertise. That's what we deal with. And if you have the knowledge and you can start from that knowledge, just execute on whatever it is that you want to execute on. They won't let you do it in your job. Go out and do it somewhere else. And I tell this to people who are trying to get into the industry. You come out of school or you're in school and you're walking around trying to get a job. Find a mentor and go out. And there are plenty of places on this planet right around you that could use our help and our skills. And I believe that there's nothing that we can't help. We can help grocery stores. We can help swimming pools. We can help the YMCA. Our services can be applied everywhere. And so go out there and start building up your repertoire and your portfolio. Don't let a job dictate your identity. Your identity is separate. And I think I was saying that earlier, that I came to a point where I identified as a design researcher, but my job titles have been UX researcher, senior UX researcher, experience researcher. I don't care what you call me. I don't care about you know what the problem is. I've got a, a body of knowledge and I've been in places where they say, you can't use those kind of analyses because that's not what we do. That's not UX. I'm not here to do UX. I'm here to solve problems, right? And your limitations won't be my limitations. And so what you do is you go out and you provide a solution, demonstrate it. And then people all of a sudden, when they see how powerful that, that work is, they have to step back. They can't deny what you do. And if so, then you just keep it moving, build up your, your portfolio, and then you go to the next place that will allow you to do what you do. And it's always a partnership. Everything you do, even if it's an employer, whatever, and you work for somebody, it should always be thought of as a partnership. And that's how they should be respecting you. I want to thank you all so, so very much for joining us today. I hope that you found some valuable content. You can connect with UXCake at uxcake.co. Also Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We love to get questions from folks who are looking for answers. And real quickly, can you guys say like how people can connect with you online? Oh, anyway, my Twitter handle is Miss underscore Hanny, H-A-N-I-E. LinkedIn, uh, Reality Canty. Twitter is Dark Ducks, D-U-X. I am Ashby Pfizer on pretty much all media. So <laughs> Twitter. F-I-S-E-R. Yes. Yeah. Instagram, Ashby Pfizer. Twitter, Ashby Pfizer. Uh, link, LinkedIn, see Ashby Pfizer. So. All right. Can we all please give our panel a round of applause? Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up another episode. Remember to follow UX Cake on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and share a link to this episode with your friends or your social media network. It really only takes a minute, and it means so much to us. Thank you for listening, and be sure to subscribe to UX Cake so you don't miss a bite.